You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Amen, amen, amen. How about this weather? I will pretend that was uh, for the sermon and uh, be very encouraged and get rolling. Uh, my name is Jason Hatch. I'm the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be finishing up the book of Romans that has taken us uh, a little bit more than a year to work through with a few pauses here and there. But today, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15. Um, so you can get there. And just a heads up, I'll get there in a few uh, minutes. Uh, because what I want to do today is a, uh, an intro or leading up to to uh, Romans chapter 15, uh, is I want to let Jesus uh, really handle the introduction and the introductory prayer to Romans 15. So if you have a Bible, get to Romans 15. Also get to John 17 because that's the setup for, uh, I think, what Paul is talking about with the church in Romans 15. Uh, If you could imagine for a second, put your uh, uh, imagination caps on, if you remember school, them telling you that. Uh, Imagine just for a second that you're the apostle John. Uh, Jesus had invited you at one point uh, to a long-term, full-time apprenticeship with him that in the first century they would call... uh, to be a disciple. And so you said yes, you became a disciple of Jesus. He was your full-time rabbi. Uh, You followed him around, uh, emulated his lifestyle, listened to his teaching for three and a half years. Uh, And over that period of time, uh, not only was he your rabbi, but he had become one of your closest friends. Uh, If you had to force Jesus into a corner and ask him to tell you who his best friend was, he would probably say John uh, was his best friend on the planet. And over those three and a half years, you became very, very convinced that your best friend uh, was the most important human being that had ever or would ever live. Uh, You were convinced that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior um, that all of the Old Testament talks about. Uh, And you're actually convinced your best friend uh, is God in the flesh, which is incredibly hard to imagine uh, how difficult of a friendship that might have been for John. Uh, You had listened to him teach for years. You had watched him uh, really shower compassion on people through miracles, uh, display his his power through casting out demons and through uh, raising people from the dead and feeding thousands and thousands of people with a small lunchable, so to speak. Uh, But then recently, uh, Jesus, his tone has begun to change. It's not like early in his ministry, when he was preaching at the Sermon on the Mount and he was blessed as this and blessed as that uh, or even some of the the parables that he told about uh, a sower went out to sow and he's teaching some uh, really incredible and important topics about the kingdom of God. Jesus' tone and his his physical countenance began to change. You can see something is weighing heavily on him. He's not talking about blessed is this, blessed is that. He's talking a lot more about his death, uh, his betrayal, uh, and you get together with the disciples, you're like, I don't know, kind of worried about Jesus. Uh, He looks like something is weighing very heavy on him, uh, and he's talking about his own death. Uh, Surely he's just maybe a little bit worn out. Um, I don't know. Maybe he's... um Maybe he's confused. Maybe he's nervous because he's getting some pressure from some of the political leaders uh, of his day. And so he's feeling like his soul is a little bit weighty. But then uh, you start to notice that his teachings for you and your 11 buddies uh, begin to take on this feeling of like, he, he sounds like he's done. 
I mean, the, the things that he's telling us seem like they are very final, like he knows he just has a few minutes left, and so he's giving us some last-minute uh, marching orders. And then uh, you, you feel this as Jesus' best friend. You notice a shift in his countenance, and then you walk into Jerusalem, and something is very different about this entrance into Jerusalem. People are excited. They're laying down palm branches. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and everything is exciting. And then this week just feels a little bit different. Uh, Jesus teaches almost every day this week uh, in the temple during the day, and then he takes the 12, you and your 11 buddies, up to the Mount of Olives at night to camp out uh, probably on the ground. Uh, most of the week, that's what's taking place. And then you find out uh, through kind of some whispers and some gossip around town that the Pharisees are really ramping up their efforts to get rid of Jesus. Um, they're actually putting some things in place where they can try to uh, trap him, try to arrest him, try to silence him, uh, and get rid of him. Uh, and then on Wednesday of this week, Jesus mentions to you that Passover's in two days. And he very specifically says that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified uh, during Passover. We thought, God, he's probably just being a little paranoid, maybe he's being a little dramatic, didn't know exactly what he was uh, talking about. And then that night, uh, a woman comes in with a very, very expensive jar of ointment, and she breaks it open, and she anoints Jesus with it, and it catches you all off guard because that's a lot of money um, that could have been spent on a lot of different things to serve a lot of different people. And this instance, Jesus says, you know what? It's fine. I'm not always going to be with you. Let her anoint me with this incredibly expensive oil. You don't get much sleep that night, Wednesday night. Thursday morning, you're up early. Jesus is teaching. He's, he's preaching. He's sharing some good news. And then Judas just disappears for a few hours in the middle of the day. You find out later on that he was uh, having a small meeting with some of the high priests. And then you begin preparing for Passover that would take place in what we call the upper room. And uh, during Passover, this is not the way Jesus has operated the last few Passovers. The last few Passovers, we celebrated uh, how God, there was this lamb thousands of years ago uh, that was spotless, and we sacrificed it, and they put the blood over the doorpost, and God passed over. But this one, Jesus is talking about himself. He's not talking about the Passover lamb. He's saying that he's going to die. Uh, he, he shifts the entirety of the, the, the focal point of uh, this Passover lamb to him. He says, this is actually my body that is broken for you. This is my blood of a new covenant that is being spilt out. He is talking very, very differently than he has in the past. At dinner, he predicts that some Somebody around the table, there's just 13 of us had a, had a 1 in 12 chance that somebody that's at the table is going to betray him. And then Jesus tells Judas something. We didn't know what he was talking about. He just said, Judas, go do what you need to do. And so Judas slips out in the middle of dinner uh, into the darkness. And then John chapter 13 tells us um, that he predicts that Peter's going to deny him. And we all wonder, like, wh why on earth would that happen? Peter's like, he he's the boldest of all of us. He's given up perhaps maybe uh, the most. Uh, but Jesus predicts Peter will deny him. And then he starts giving us a new command. John 13, he says, a new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. And we're trying to take in what on earth that means, how we're supposed to do that. He says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back and I'll receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He's preparing us for something very, very dramatic. Uh, he, he knows what's about to take place. Has a strong propensity to make us very, very scared. And so he starts out John 14, 1 through 6. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then in John 15, would be a few minutes later, he's encouraging us to abide in him. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's preparing us for a long road, a long ministry of trying to stay connected with him to do some difficult work. Uh, and then in John 16, a few minutes later, he gives us some very strategic and precise instructions about the Holy Spirit. He says, when I leave, you're not going to be alone. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to need him, so prepare. Um, get ready for the Holy Spirit. And then he's just visibly distraught. You can read in his face and his body language, he's your best friend, and you can tell something is different. And then after dinner, uh, he leads you out. You go into the darkness. You go across the Kidron Valley. You go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he leaves nine, but he takes you, and he takes... Uh, Peter, and he takes James uh, a little bit further into the garden. So nine of them are hanging out uh, in the woods. Three get to go with Jesus a little bit further, and then you watch him go a little bit further, and it's dark, but you can see a little bit through the top of the olive trees, this moonlight coming down, and you watch Jesus, and he's praying, uh, and he seems to be begging God for this not to happen. He says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done, not my will. Uh, and then you kind of nod off, and he comes back, and he wakes you up, and he says, hey, what, what happened? You're supposed to be helping. Uh, pray for me. Uh, and then he goes back into the woods a little bit, and he does that a few times, uh, and he prays, and then he comes back, and you can see something is wrong. Uh, he, he's bloody. His clothes are bloody. He's apparently so stressed out, so anxious that uh, he's not only sweating, some capillaries have burst, and he's sweating blood, and he is very visibly and physically and emotionally distraught. And then you watch him, the same guy who had raised people from the dead, who had performed miracles, cast out demons in the garden, in the dark, late that night, bends down on his knees, and he lifts up his head, and you just know, like, this is it. This is it. I felt this all week. The end is coming, and this is it. This is the last few moments that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not just have with my best friend, but witness him, and he's about to pray. And so you're kind of leaning in. You, you, you move a few trees so you can get close enough to see him and to listen to what he's saying. And he's on his knees, and he lifts up his head. And, and then later on, you're going to record this. Um, you're going to write this down so that everybody can know what happened that night in the garden. And we, we call it John chapter 17. Uh, you're watching, you're listening, and this is what the Apostle John wrote, John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, late this night in the dark, in the garden, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, and then in your Bible, this is red letters, These are this is John quoting Jesus as he's lifting up his eyes, praying to his father in the garden. Jesus prayed this, Father, the hour has come. So if you're John, maybe you're beginning to realize that this is it. This is it. This is game time. Glorify your son, Jesus says, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority 
over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you, Jesus says on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before you, before the world existed. You don't want to interrupt Jesus, but you can tell that something different has taken place. This is the last few minutes you have. Verse 6, he says, I manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And you know in this moment that he's actually praying for you, praying for the 12 specifically, probably a few more dozen that uh, were Jesus' followers. They believed his message, believed what he said, had given up a lot of things to be his followers. And you know in the last moment, like Jesus is praying for, for you. And you wonder, like, what on earth? What, what, is, what is he going to pray for me in these last few moments that he has? Verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying, Jesus says, for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and are yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, and then here's the prayer he prays specifically for John. Imagine you're in the garden, you're watching this take place, you're just close enough to hear his voice, and he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one. And at that moment, my guess is that John was caught off guard. He was like, a lot of things Jesus could have prayed for me, but this was his very specific and chosen prayer that me and my 11 buddies and the handful of other people that have self-declared they're followers of Jesus, Jesus desperately wants us to be unified. He says, I pray that they are one, even as we are one. And maybe, I don't know if, if, if John looked at Peter and James, I don't know if he looked back to try to see the other ones trying to interpret that this was Jesus' big finale. He wants us to get along with each other. He wants us to be unified. Skip down to verse 20. Same prayer. Jesus is still praying, but he shifts his attention from praying for all of his uh, present-day disciples, those who are following him uh, right now, to somebody else. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will in the future believe in me through their word. And so John's listening. He's like, okay, so now he's praying for people that are going to hear the message and respond to it days from now, weeks from now, years from now, decades from now, centuries from now. This would obviously include those of us in the room that are Christians. Jesus prayed for us that night. What did he pray? Of all the things that he could have prayed for people walking through uh, 2020 and living out uh, whatever challenges that were faced, like what did Jesus pray for all future believers? That they, this is verse 21, may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that, 
And so he, he prays for unity for the disciples, unity for future disciples, but that wasn't the end in itself. That was a means to, to some other end. The unity was very important, but it was to, to do something. It was to produce something else. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you, God, had sent me, Jesus, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. And then Judas shows up, betrays him, kills him. That's it. That's the end. That's the end of the earthly ministry that Jesus had, that was, was the pinnacle of his teaching and what he chose to end on, which is the introduction to Romans chapter 15, because Jesus' heart and Jesus' prayer, no doubt John passed that on to the other disciples that weren't there. He gave it to Paul. Paul knows that like one of the big purposes of church is that Christians be unified so that the world may know that God has sent Jesus into the world and we're truly his disciples. And so what you see take place in Romans 15, I mean, it, it lays over so nicely and neatly with John 17, they're, they're kind of parallel tracks. And so thus far in the book of Romans, here's what's happened. And if you've been with us uh, for the last year, uh, you know much of this. Uh, the first big chunk of Romans, Paul is just talking about Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus has accomplished with his life, with his death. And he has uh, given us a chance to uh, be unified with him through the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He just talks about Jesus and the gospel. And then he moves on to some practical instructions. Uh, so the second half of Romans, it gets into some very practical things. Because we belong to Jesus um, by grace through faith, that now we're supposed to live a certain way. We're supposed to do certain things and not do certain things. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you find out uh, even if we have different convictions, we're supposed to try to bend towards one another uh, to give up our freedom so that we can love and serve. That's the implications of living out a life as a follower of Jesus. And then Romans 15 he begins to explain to us what the end goal is for trying to live like Jesus. So you've got gospel. This is Jesus, just who Jesus is, what he has done, and then you've got implications. Now, if you're a Christian, you need to try with all of your might, with the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, to live like a Christian and be like Jesus. And now Romans 15, Paul is going to tell us why? Like, like, why? The end game for a bunch of Christians in the world trying to be like Jesus in God's heart and through the, the design of Christ for his church in the world, what is the end goal? What is the end game for this? So all that to say, if you're in Romans 15, chapter, chapter 15, verses 1, say ready or say it's about time, either one. This is what Paul says. So we got the gospel. Now we're trying to live it out. And he kind of gives us some of the end game. Uh, and the first few verses is kind of tying up uh, chapter 14. So go back and listen to that if you missed it the last two weeks. Uh, Paul says this, we who are strong, not physically, but have an understanding of true freedom in Christ. We have an obligation 
to bear with the failings of the weak. Those who have uh, strong convictions, but they've imposed them on others and become um, not a non-Christian, but become very judgmental towards other Christians. This is tying up the conversation from chapter 14. He says, like inside the church, the Christians were different. We have different convictions, but we all have an obligation to love and serve each other. He says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him or her up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement. Those two words are going to come up two different times in this small text because if you're going to be faithful, not just as a Christian, but to other Christians, you are going to need those two things. You're going to need endurance and you're going to need encouragement. He says through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then here's what we're unpacking today. May the, this is Paul praying to God very similar things that Jesus prayed. May the God of endurance and encouragement, those two things, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That, that's the, the, this, a different way of phrasing what Jesus said, make them one as you and I are one. Uh, Paul calls them to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Uh, friends, church, unity matters a great deal, probably more than I, I'm just like even this week, and I've talked about this a lot. I've read uh, John chapter 17 uh, hundreds of times, and I've thought about like why G when Jesus was, he, he knew it was the end. Even the disciples were picking up on it like this is the end. This is it. And what dominates his prayer in the garden is that Christians then and Christians now would be marked by a sense of unity, as Jesus puts it, harmony or oneness, as Paul puts it, unity matters a lot to Jesus, a lot more than a lot of other things that we maybe elevate as some of the most uh, prominent things, the most important things. Uh, it seems like Jesus takes unity among Christians and elevates it almost to the very, very top. Unity matters a great deal. And so here's the phrase that I want to use to unpack Romans 15, 1 through 7. We're being sanctified, I'll unpack that in a minute, so that we can be unified, so that God can be glorified. That's the, the, the progression of, of Jesus' prayer, the entire Bible, the life of the Christian, definitely Romans chapter 15. We as Christians, if you, you're just like, I'm in, I love Jesus, he died for me, uh, he forgave me, I'm a Christian, okay? Then, then, then this story is true for all of us. We are being sanctified so that we can be unified, so that God can be glorified. What does it mean that we're being sanctified? Everybody say sanctified. That's a big church word. Uh, it, it's, it, it mean, it's a process. It, it's a, a word that describes basically the entirety of the Christian life from the moment you believe in Christ till the moment you 
breathe your last breath and you see Him face to face. Sanctification is the process that we go through where God makes us like Jesus, okay? Sanctification means we're, we're trying to push out and do w- away with our sin, and we're learning to love like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to um, relate to other people like Jesus. And uh, I think we can all agree this is a very long, sometimes a very slow process. But the Bible's very, very clear that, that God's actually committed to that process in you uh, more than you're committed to that process in you. Uh, he says that He won't even abandon it until He is done and finished and He has pushed out all the sin and you look like Jesus. But in the here and now, it's a process. We're being sanctified. That, that means we're, we're growing and we look more like Jesus every day. Okay? Uh, I look a lot more like Jesus than I did uh, a month ago. Uh, I feel like I deal with criticism more like Jesus. I, I, I deal with internal anxiety more like Jesus. And I'll tell you this, I have a long way to go. Some of y'all said, amen. If my wife were here, my kids are here, they could like, I have such a long way to go. But I've made progress, just like you. Like, you've got a long way to go in every area. Uh, but, but God's making progress with us. He, he's pushing us along. We're being sanctified. And a lot of the Bible, the New Testament, is written to help us be sanctified, to know, oh, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? How would Jesus respond? What would He do uh, when, when, when He has an enemy? Would He love them? Would He hate them? Would He try to get back with them? Would He turn the other cheek? A, a lot of the New Testament is giving us the instructions to be sanctified. When you take the Word of God, which it's really, really difficult, nay, impossible to be sanctified without the Word of God because you don't know what you're aiming at. But if you take the Word of God, which is necessary, and the people of God, which is also very necessary, it's very, very difficult, even with the Bible, to be sanctified as a Christian without the help and the encouragement and sometimes the calling out of other Christians. So it takes the Word of God, it takes the, 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 the people of God, and it's just it's impossible to do without the Spirit of God. So when these three things combine, when you're truly a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, you're reading your Bible, you've got a steady diet of the Word of God, and you're in some type of community with God's people, those three things connect to help us become more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit changes your desires where you want to. He reveals in us uh, challenges and, con- and conviction of sin and shows us what we should change and helps us to change. The, the Word of God gives us the material. The, the, the people of God give us the encouragement. So those three things combine to help us be more like Jesus. But what's the goal? What's the goal of being sanctified? We are sanctified so that we may be what? Unified. It seems to me the goal, or at least maybe not the only goal, but one of the big goals of us becoming like Jesus is so that we may be one, so that we may be unified. A big goal of sanctification is unification. Um, The gospel very obviously in the scriptures produces unity in people. It produces relational harmony. Okay, Paul talks about it. He uses the word uh, harmony. So if Jesus is he's, he's in the garden, he's got one last few moments to pray, and he prays for the 12 disciples and for you and I as future followers of him, he prays, God, just please help them be one, help them be unified. 
Okay? What, what sin does is sin separates people and sanctification or holiness or the removal of sin, the presence of the traits of Jesus, it unifies. Sin separates, sanctification unifies. That's how it always works. Uh, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul speaking to a different church in Ephesus, and he says this when he's transitioning really from the first half of that book, talking about the gospel, now he's talking about the implication of the gospel and how we live our lives. Uh, Ephesians 4, it's on the screen here. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What's he saying? He's like, you need to be sanctified. You're a Christian now, and you need to learn what it means to live like Jesus. I want you to walk like in, in, after the manner of which you have been called with all humility. And the next few things that we're going to go through from this verse... Uh, imagine these things on on uh, somewhat of a spectrum or a sliding scale, that there's an opposite to humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And the opposite of those is sin, and sin separates people. Okay? Sin separates. It always has. It always will. Holiness, sanctification unifies people. So he says, listen, I want you to grow in, in, in sanctification. Be like Jesus with all humility. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. If you have a person in your life that's very prideful, chances are it's hard to be friends with them. It is hard to have relational harmony with someone who is prideful. It just is. It always has been. It always will be. Sin separates people. Pride it makes it very difficult for relational harmony. What's the opposite? Humility. Do you ever have a friend that's very humble? Hopefully. <laughs> It makes it much easier to have some, like a deep, good friendship or marriage with them because humility draws people together. It produces relational harmony. What about gentleness? What's the opposite of gentleness? Harshness would be a good one, probably a handful of synonyms. Uh, if you know somebody that's very, very harsh, chances are it's hard to be their friend. It may be hard to be their spouse at some point because sin separates holiness, sanctification, unifies. So he's like, well, don't, don't be prideful. That, that's not going to give you the relational unity that we're after. Be, have some humility. Don't be harsh. Be gentle. Uh, patience. What's the opposite of patience? This is a very, very easy one. Just throw in a little prefix. Nobody. Impatience, right? Just not patient with people. If you have somebody in your life that's just not, they have no room for people, and especially somebody that's going to make some mistakes and cause some problems, it's really hard to be their friend. It's really hard to have any kind of unity because sin separates, holiness unifies. So he's like the, the opposite end of the spectrum is patient. If you're patient, you're going to have much better relationships, obviously. Uh, bearing with one another in love. If you're not willing to bear with anybody, it's going to be really hard for you to have some good, healthy, harmonious relationships. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain what? The unity of the Spirit. And the, see, it seems to, like to, to Paul, the, the point of all this, the sanctification, you've got to like you have to act like the calling that you've been given, being sanctified. Why? To maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It, it's about unity, even, even there. He's after unity. Sanctification, we're being sanctified so that we might be unified. And back to Romans chapter 15, if we're going to be unified, it's going to take uh, at least two things. Uh, Paul says endurance and encouragement. Why? <laughs> 
why would Paul say, I want you to be unified and you're going to need some endurance? Because he had met a human being. That's why. Like he had some friends and he had tried to have some unity with some other people um, that were marred by sin. And he found out this, this is just not that easy. This is just not real easy to maintain relational unity. It's going to take some endurance. What does that mean? It gets really hard. It gets really painful. And you can't give up. You can't quit. It takes some endurance. So if we're going to walk this prayer of Jesus out in John 17 and the command of Paul in Romans 15, he, he says, like, may the God of endurance that gives us the ability to be like Jesus uh, and the God of encouragement. You're, go- you're going to need some encouragement if you're going to be unified with other people. Just as a side note to unity, I think, because if you, if you, if you read what the what the New Testament talks about for Christians being unified and kind of what's valued most in our culture, perhaps, I think they're very different because in, in the Bible, what marks maturity, true maturity of believers, is I think something different maybe than we use to measure it by. If you have a, a, a kid, a young, young child, and you're trying to measure their growth, you're trying to measure their, their maturity. Uh, there's a, a, a few different ways that you could do that. You could uh, measure them in height every few months. You could measure them in weight every three months to see if they're growing uh, in their physical uh, stature. You can uh, give them some standardized tests periodically and see if they're growing in their mentality. So what measure does the Bible use to figure out if Christians are maturing? See, we would say, at least I would make the case in our culture, we would say biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, the smarter you are, the more you understand theology, the more mature you are, and yet that's not the mark that the Bible uses to measure true maturity. I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and finish Paul's thoughts on this. Um, Ephesians 4.11 says, and he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, and he's going to list five different uh, leadership giftings and roles that are present in the New Testament church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers um, to equip the saints, that's all Christians, to, to give them the tools or the equipment they need for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain, and then he's like, he's about to unleash, like, this is the goal. This is what we're after in churches. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What marks a truly mature Christian is not how much we know. Knowledge and theology is crucial, but it's true maturity as a Christian is being able to use the knowledge that you have of the gospel and actually be unified with other sinners. That is true maturity. Somebody that could recite Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, every page of it, but can't get along with another Christian, like they're not, they're not mature as, as, as Jesus or, or Paul would mark. So like this is why I'm saying unity it's such an important thing, and that actually is what marks 
a healthy and a growing and a maturing Christian, not by how much we know, but by how much we're able to be unified and to have what Paul again says, harmony. Jesus didn't say that they're going to know you're my disciples by your knowledge. Is knowledge important? Absolutely. But Jesus said, I want all this to happen so that they may be unified, so that the whole world may know that you've sent me and that you're my disciples. It has a lot to do with relational unity. Uh, Harmony, I, I want to go back to this uh, in, in Romans 15. I think it's interesting that Paul uses that term, um, harmony. Um, so I, I was in high school, I, I played sports, but I was also in show choir. Um, so it was kind of hard for a lot of people to figure out like w- what I was. I was uh, captain of the track team and captain of the powerlifting team and also in show choir. And they're like, I don't know. That's kind of a weird mix. It's like, I can't lift weights. Uh, Got to go sing for this Christmas thing. Um, so uh, I understand what harmony is, uh, which obviously many of you do too. I wrote my own definition. This is not earth shattering, but I thought this definition of harmony what was the most helpful because it explains musical harmony in a way that just directly applies to what Paul's talking about in Romans 15. This is how Jason defines harmony. Very different notes playing at the same time that complement each other and together they create something beautiful. Brilliant, I know. (laughs) No, it's like so, so, so simple, but that's how Paul is trying to describe what a local church should be. God doesn't want melody. Where's Melody Bender? I'm not talking about, God does want Melody Bender. Melody Bender is awesome. Melody Bender was singing here. I'm talking about melody. Like melody just takes one person, one person singing the main flow of the song and the notes. Like the melody, he doesn't say he wants melody. He wants what? He wants harmony. He wants a church full of people that have very different gifts, very different passions, even very different convictions that are all working together in love to produce harmony. Harmony is more full and more beautiful than melody. This, the, 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 the song, not Bender. Very different notes. So think about like what, what God is after, what he prayed for in John 17, what, what Paul's talking about in Romans. What is he after? Why are we being sanctified? So because he wants to play a, a relational harmony out to the world and be able to point to him like, I did that. I took a whole bunch of people that were very different, and I, as their father, helped them to get along, and now all of their differences are working together in unison, and they're producing a harmony that the world looks at and is like, the gospel's real, God's real, it really works, I, do, I want relational unity, and something that, that they're doing is, is producing it. But what's the goal of that? We're being sanctified so that we we can be unified. Is the end goal our unity? And I would make the case, no, the end goal is not our unity. What's the end goal? We are being sanctified so that we can be unified, so that what? So that God can be glorified. Verse 6, Romans 15, that together, again, monster theme, so that together there is no such thing as kind of the American idea of a Lone Ranger Christian, like, well, I don't need the church, I don't need other Christians, I'm just, I got my Bible and I'm loving Jesus, I'm like, cool, well, that doesn't exist in the Bible, because there's a, a the way in which individuals don't play out fully what God's designed, it's, it's taken a family, so Paul says that together you may with one voice 
with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point of us being unified and, and learning to get along and learning to live in harmony is so that God is glorified through our unity, through our harmony. Are y'all with me? We're being sanctified. If you're a Christian, you're in this process just like me where we're learning every day. We're trying to look more and more like Jesus. We're being sanctified. Why? Not so that we can know a lot of things, but so that we can be unified, so that we can be together. We can be a family presenting Christ to the world. Why? So that God might be glorified. Someone told me the other day that they had seen my children playing together, and uh, just as a side note, this doesn't happen all the time, but when it did, it was sure music to my ears. They said, I watched your kids playing together, and I just wanted to let you know that I was impressed that they loved each other and they got along. And I just sat down, I was like, <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Like, that, that's the most incredible thing as a parent, you know, that you could ever hear. Why? Because, like, unity with your kids says something about you. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, in this one little five-minute slice of heaven that we had uh, unity and harmony, like I, did, like, I did that. Like, me and Hannah, we did that. We, 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 we parented them enough where they love each other and they get along. And that says a lot of things about, about us, right? Again, for those few minutes. Like, when the world, like, let's say, so this is how I'll close. Somebody goes up to God, they say, hi, I saw a lot of your kids down in Midland. And he's like, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, what's coming next? Because I've, uh, I've heard this a handful of times. Like, I was just, I was so impressed. They were getting along with each other. They were unified. It was like a, it's like this weird little harmony being played out among the world. That's what Paul is asking the church to do. I'm not going to go back and read all of John 17, but I do want to read Paul's words from verses 5 through 7 and let that be the end. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, specifically you, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice, and this happens when we sing, hundreds of different voices are singing one song, one voice unified is rising up, and that's what God is hearing. That's what pleases Him in a very unique and special way, but not just singing, just like our lives together rise up with one voice glorifying the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What an, what an incredible way for him to end that thought. Why, why should we do all this? Because Jesus has welcomed you. Jesus has done for you what God is now calling us to do for other people. Let's pray. Jesus... Your prayer rings in my ears over and over and over, just like a father with his children, how important it is um, to you that we learn to live in harmony, um, to have unity with one another. And so, Father, I pray that you might 
Grant that towards us. Give us the endurance that we need um, to deal with each other and all of our own uh, sin and faults and just the, the endurance that we're going to need over the long haul of life to be unified with other people. Give us the endurance and through your spirit, give us the encouragement um, to be unified and to play this harmony out for the world. Father, I pray that um, truly people would look in on our uh, families and our friendships and our community groups and, and something about the harmony among us would draw them to believe that the gospel is actually true. I pray that our unity might show the world that you truly have Jesus been sent by the Father. Father, I pray that you'd give us the humility and the patience that we need to do this as each one of us, we're all facing the same direction, trying to be unified. We're facing the same direction, trying to be sanctified and learn what it means to follow Jesus. But God, we're all in very, very different places. Some of us have been doing this for 50 years. Some of us have been doing this for two weeks. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would help us to be sanctified, help us to be unified so that you might be glorified in us. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Uh, we've got a little bit of a different way that we're going to um, have some response time this morning. Um, we're actually going to be uh, sending out and praying over our group that is going to be leaving in the next few weeks uh, to move to Dripping Springs to plant a church. Um, so I'll uh, go ahead and ask you, if you're on that Dripping Springs core team, to go ahead and make your way up to the front. Uh, we'll throw up a picture of at least the, at least the Midland portion of this. And then I'll, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop uh, just about why we care about church planting. Uh, why are we a church that's trying to, as quickly as we want to invite people to come in here, we're trying to send people out. Uh, we're trying to send people and leaders and planters and resources out. Um, because I want you to know, first off, that this, this one... Like when we've planted a handful of churches in the last um, seven years, uh, this one's going to hurt. <laughs> this one, it cost us uh, a lot. Maybe the price tag on this one is more than uh, even the rest because we've got uh, Pastor James. How many of y'all love Pastor James? Um, he has been on staff, full-time position, two and a half years. Uh, it's going to hurt uh, to send them. Rob was leading worship this morning. He was standing right here. How many of y'all love Rob? His wife, Daniel, has been one of our three counselors for the past year working in Redeemer Counseling. How many of y'all love Danielle? The Heels uh, have been leading in the youth ministry and all sorts of stuff, community groups and all sorts of things over the years. How many of y'all, you don't even know them, but you just like them? We got the Tyners, good grief. The Tyners have been around for a long time, have led community groups. Lauren has been on staff. If you have kids that have been in Redeemer Kids for the last few years and they have had anything to do with learning the gospel and being loved on, then Lauren has had a lot to do with that. Uh, Jonathan has mentored young men, has discipled folks. They've led community groups, and this one's going to hurt. How many of y'all love the Tyners? Boy, this is embarrassing. Remind me your last name. <laughs> The Lemons. Okay, so I met the Lemons, or I, I met them, uh, I guess a year or two ago, but uh, ran into them down in Dripping Springs when Cam and I went down there uh, a few weeks ago to go meet with the core team, and uh, just the Lord was so gracious to bring and intersect their story in with uh, the team that's going out to plant in uh, Dripping Springs. So how many of y'all love the Lemons? I was like, I didn't even get to know them, and they're leaving. Like, and so this is why I say this. This hurts. Why are we doing it? 
If somebody pays something ridiculous, like that was expensive, then that normally communicates, okay, well, there must be something on the other side that, that is worth it. Why is this worth it? Why are we sending servants? Why are we sending staff? Why are we sending financial givers and prayers? Because we believe in the gospel, and we believe the pattern of discipleship throughout the last 2,000 years, the way that God is, is accomplishing the Great Commission to go to make disciples of all nations is primarily through churches planting churches planting churches. And we're more about the kingdom of God than we are about Redeemer Midland. That's why we're willing to send people out. So uh, we want to have some time this morning um, to pray over this team. Uh, and there's the, the core team, even in Dripping Springs. James told me this morning a handful of them are watching this morning uh, from Dripping Springs. Um, so this isn't the entire core team. God's been very, very gracious uh, to, uh, to, to Pastor James and his leadership in this team um, to build together a core team. But they're moving in a few weeks. Uh, and they're going to begin the very long, very difficult process um, to plant a gospel-centered missional family in the, I think it was the, the fastest-growing uh, zip code perhaps in the United States, definitely in Texas. So a lot of people, a lot of opportunities. So we need to pray over them um, that the Holy Spirit would keep them, what, unified uh, to keep them on mission, to give them the wisdom uh, that they need to follow his leading to plant Redeemer Dripping Springs. So uh, I'm going to ask them to kind of spread out maybe. I'll ask you, maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Go ahead and come forward. Maybe surround uh, eat, eat, uh, different families and let's just put hands on them and pray for them um, that God would uh, flex his, his muscles and do some incredible things uh, through their efforts in Dripping Springs. I'll give you a minute to get up and to move down here, surround one family, and then I'll pray for us here. In just a second. If you're at your chair, feel free. If you want to, you can reach out a hand and you can join us in praying uh, for them as well. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, the gospel is worth a lot of sacrifice. It's worth a lot of sending new churches to, to reach new people. It's, it's worth it. So, Father, I pray uh, for James and for Randa. Uh, for their marriage, for their unity, for all of the core team, both in this room and in Dripping Springs. Father, we just pray that you would give them supernatural unity. Uh, Father, we pray for clear direction, that your spirit would tell them uh, where to go, where to meet, what to say, how to live, and that you would ultimately bring a lot of people to follow Jesus, and that Jesus, you would get a lot of glory out of Redeemer Dripping Springs. We pray that you would protect them from uh, our great enemy, that you'd protect their souls, protect their marriages, protect this church, and we just pray that you would use them for your purposes in Dripping Springs. We love them. We are grateful for them. We're excited for the future that you have for them and all of the people that love Jesus and love this team said, amen, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.